Chapter 18 Of Paul, a Herald of the Cross This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Paul, a Herald of the Cross by Florence M. Kingsley Chapter 18 The End of the Play Cassius Curius, the tribune of the Praetorian cohort, was in an evil mood. It needed but a single glance at his unhealthily pallid face and sullen bloodshot eyes to assure his slaves of the fact. Yet these astute observers performed their customary offices with none of the cringing humility which might have been looked for under the circumstances. They even laughed and winked at one another knowingly behind their master's back. Something of this thinly veiled insolence became evident to Curius after a time. For rousing himself from his grim abstraction, he ordered them out of his presence. I care no more than that for his frown, said one of them, snapping his fingers contemptuously as they filed out into the passageway. Can I not give curse for curse, and are there no gods in Egypt? But let him lay so much as a finger weight upon my body. I let him, assented his companion with a boastful laugh. Moreover, he knows it. Who better? And he fears us. A year since we should have trembled like whipped curs in his presence. Now, ha, ha. He is forced to bite his lips to keep back the curses. Lest we denounce him. I, the emperor, is a good father to the oppressed. Hark you, whispered another, thrusting his swarthy visage betwixt the pair. Have we not had enough of this sport, amusing as it is? I am for casting off even the semblance of a chain, and today. But bethink you, is he not too high in power? We might perchance burn our fingers in the attempt, and fail of the morsel in the end. Yesterday Pollux, the slave of Claudius, the emperor's kinsman, denounced his master, growled the Egyptian. Claudius will be tried without delay, and I wager a week's victual that the prince dies and the slave receives his freedom. The other stared open-mouthed at his piece of intelligence. He is a bold fellow, that Pollux, said one of them enviously. If Claudius dies, he will receive a goodly sum of gold, I suppose. No less than an eighth of the entire property, together with his freedom, said the Egyptian with relish. Oh, but we be driveling fools to groan in slavery when we might be free and rich. Fools? Yes, we be accursed fools to talk of such things, said an old man who had not hitherto spoken. Look at my gray hairs, comrades. Sixty years have I lived in slavery. In my youth I was sentenced to death because I had broken a crystal dish at a banquet. My life was spared at the entreaty of my master's son, who had conceived an affection for me. Again, when my noble master was found dead in his bed, 
all the slaves in his dwelling were condemned to the sword, since the magician could find no reason for the sudden stoppage of his breath. We who had looked on at the banquet that night might have explained the matter, since the paunch of a noble contains no more than that of a slave. A second time I was spared at the entreaty of the lad who, though grown almost to manhood, had not forgotten his early kindness. Look you, that lad was Curius, our master, and he is a good master to us all. The furies burn thee for a meddlesome old greybeard, cried the Egyptian loudly. Take that. May it remind thee to hold thy peace in the future. And he struck the old man full in the face with his clenched fist. Come, come, man, let be. Old Gorpius hath spoken truly enough. Curius is not a bad master. Moreover, it must be remembered that he is not a rich man, as men are accounted, and tis only men with plenty of gold in their coffers who may be safely denounced to our illustrious emperor. An eighth of what he hath would content me, muttered the other with a black scowl at Gorpius, who was meekly wiping his bloody face. The bell, slave, art thou daft as well as stupid? We must have a care what we say in his hearing in the future. He continued as the old man hobbled away. If our master be not rich enough to put to death, yet if we be nimble-witted we shall soon find cause for his undoing. Here comes Cornelius Sabinus, watch him, I pray thee. He also hath an angry and sullen look for so gay a gallant. Come, explain to me, since thou art somewhat of a philosopher, what profit may it be to a man to be softly bedded and daintly fed when he doth forget all in his hates and his loves, even as do we who are slaves? I have a mind to listen at the door. There be mischiefs on foot. Ay, and lose thine ears for thy pains. Be content with what thine eyes shall tell thee. Behind the closed doors, Curius greeted his visitor with a surly look and an inarticulate growl. Thou art in a unwholesome humor this morning, my friend, remarked the newcomer with a keen look at his tribune. How go our matters? How go our matters? repeated Curius irritably. Nay, thou knowest as well as I, the empty days slip by one after another, and we stand on the brink of liberty and hesitate and grimace and falter, like puny boys who dread the plunge into the invigorating cisterna. The emperor starts tomorrow for Alexandria, said Sibinus, throwing himself back in his oaken chair, and once out of Rome, he starts tomorrow, shrieked Curius, springing to his feet. Who says so? No less a person than the royal Chamberlain Codrus, who is one of us. Tis a sudden resolve taken because of something which occurred at the sacrifice yesterday. Curius smote his hands together without a word. His haggard eyes fastened feverishly on the face opposite him. The beast turned from the altar and rushed into the crowd just as the priest lifted the sacrificial knife continued Sabinus. 
a bad omen, as all the world knows. Upon examining the entrails, the augurs advised the emperor to leave Rome at once, since the air from the marshes might prove deadly to him in his present state of health. Curius laughed aloud drearily. Something sharper than the wandering winds of the marshes must needs be called to our aid to rid the world of this living and walking death, he said with a bitter emphasis. Are we men or are we sluggish brutes that we are content to be the instruments of his detestable vagaries? Listen, that you may know how low I have fallen, then spit upon me. Yesterday he commanded me to torture a woman on the rack and to the end that she might be forced to confess her lover guilty of treason. The man was innocent of the charge, I knew it, yet did I? The tribune of the Praetorian cohort descend to the office of a low-born executioner. May the gods forgive me. The wretched woman's shrieks echo in my ears without ceasing. Sabinus ground his teeth. Did the woman confess to the lie? Not she. With the courage of a lioness, she refused even amid the most horrible tortures. Afterward, as I had been ordered, I caused her to be borne into the presence of the emperor. He stared at her exquisite body, twisted and torn by the rack as one might look upon a bit of ruined pastry. A monstrous pity, he growled. She was a handsome woman. Then he turned to me with an oath. Why did you rack her, fool? I did it at thy command, royal master, I made answer. He turned on his heel with another execration. Take her away, he commanded, and give her a thousand talents from thine own coffers. Knave, since thou hast tortured her, this I did gladly enough, though it well nigh stripped me. Why didst thou not strike him dead upon the body of the woman? Demanded Sabinus, his eyes blazing. She is but one of a thousand who cry for justice upon this monster. Why did I not strike him dead? Repeated Curius bitterly. Oh, why? Why? Who after all am I? Why not the Senate which he has scorned and outraged? Why not the nobles whose wives and daughters he has insulted? and whose sons he has murdered. Why not the army, whole legions of which he has decimated? Why not the immortal gods, whose face he has spit upon? Nay, why does not eternal Rome herself arise from her seven hills, seize this demon, and thrust him down into the smoking pit of unending torment? Cornelius Sabinus arose to his feet. The matter must be accomplished, and now, he said in cold, even tones, if thou who hast undertaken this matter dost hesitate longer, I swear I will today strike the blow in the face of all Rome. Korea seized him by the arm. Look you, he whispered hoarsely, this hand and no other shall strike that blow. So may the gods restore to me my last honor. In the theater which the emperor had lately caused to be built in the garden connected with his palace, a tumultuous throng assembled on this, the fifth and last day of the games. Men, women, and children from every rank of society 
poured into the enclosure in such multitudes that the ushers were unable to perform their duties. Caius Caesar, who was already in his place, observed this. By faith, he said with an unwanted geniality to Sabinus, who stood at his right hand, we see today a great sight, men, women, nobles, senators, soldiers, and slaves, sitting together without regard to rank or station. See to it, some of you, that plenty of fruits be flung among them. The matter has already been attended to according to custom, replied Sabinus, bowing. The emperor shivered. I am cold, he whined fretfully. Where is my furred mantle? He looked uneasily about him at the marble benches ranged in semi-circular tiers and crowded to the very roof with gaily dressed people, at the stage where the play was already beginning, at the decorous faces of his attendants, at his own pallid hands loaded with gems, that strange sensation of cold, a heavy breathless chill like that from a newly opened vault, still oppressed him. Again he shivered. Curius, the tribune, stood at his side, his face as blank and expressionless as one of the carven masks above his head. My good Curius, said the emperor softly leaning forward. The tribune did not stir. The senator, Asperinus, touched him upon the shoulder. The emperor is addressing you, he whispered. Curius raised his eyes and fixed them upon his master. He did not move from his place, and he spoke no word of apology or explanation. My good Curius, continued the emperor suavely, hast thou paid the woman Quintilia the thousand talents as I bade thee? The money has been paid, said Curius in a low voice, his dull unwinking eyes still resting upon the face of his royal questioner. T'was scarce needful that I should ask, my brave tribune, for me to command is for thee to obey. But know that I now restore to thee the sum fourfold in token of my appreciation of thy distinguished services. Curius raised his hand in a military salute, his face contracting painfully. He opened his mouth as if to speak, but no sound came forth. Turning abruptly, he left the royal presence. The emperor looked after him thoughtfully. Our brave tribune is overcome with gratitude, he said aloud drilly. Inwardly, he was thinking, the man hates me. He is dangerous. He must die. Again, he looked down at his feeble, nerveless hands and a sudden sickening sense of his own helplessness overpowered him. They all hate me, he muttered. But how can I slay them? And alone? They hate me, and I hate, hate, hate. He raised his eyes and fixed them indifferently upon the stage. The play represented the fortunes of a wandering robber chieftain who in the course of the drama was to be crucified. The part of the robber had been taken by the actor Apelles, but now that the scene of the crucifixion was reached, a condemned criminal tricked out in the properties of the actor, was dragged onto the stage that the scene might be properly realistic. 
This being one of the emperor's own devices, he was wont to watch the stage with delighted eagerness. But today, there was something offensive in the shrieks of the wretch as they nailed him upon his cross. I am weary of all this, he muttered, as the theater rang with wild applause. Why not visit the bath, royal master, suggested Codrus, who stood behind his chair, afterward dine, and return to the theater rested and refreshed, when the play is finished, and pantomimes must still be performed in the choruses. The emperor grasped the arms of his chair. I will go, he said, looking vaguely and irresolutely about him. Minucianus arose quietly as if to pass out. Whither art thou going, O brave senator? said the emperor, laying a detaining hand upon his shoulder. The man dropped into his place again without a word, but a moment later, with a whispered aside to Sabinus, who stood just behind him, he slipped away unnoticed. Caius still sat in his place, his head dropped forward upon his breast, his lips moving as if he talked with himself. Thou art over-weary, gracious majesty, said Asprinus, bending deferentially over him. Would it not be well to withdraw for rest and refreshment? The emperor looked up, his dull eyes full of vague, bewildered questionings like those of a tired child. Yes, my friend, he said slowly, passing his hand across his eyes. I am weary. It has been a long day, a long, long day. I will get me to my rest. Then he arose and went out, apprentice following. End of chapter 18